Perhaps the most discussed presentation in lung cancer at ASCO this year was the presentation of findings from the second major phase 3 randomized trial evaluating the anti-VEGF agent bevacizumab combined with chemotherapy and first-line treatment of metastatic non-small cell carcinoma. Dr. Rogerio Lillenbaum began his review of a series of key papers by commenting on the so-called AVAIL study. The AVAIL study was a randomized phase 3 study of bevacizumab in combination with cisplatin gemcitabine or cisplatin gemcitabine and placebo in previously untreated advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients. This was a study conducted in Europe, and it's the second trial to look at the benefit of bevacizumab in combination with chemo in this patient population. What's interesting about this study design that was slightly different than the ECOG study, 4599, is the fact that they looked at two different doses of bevacizumab, 7.5 milligrams per kilogram or the 15 milligrams per kilogram that we use or that was used in the ECOG study, and the typical cisplatin gemcitabine regimen. The endpoint of the study was also different than the ECOG endpoint, and that's, I think, an important observation. Although the trial was originally designed as having an overall survival endpoint, it was later adjusted or amended to a progression-free survival endpoint. So all of these patients had non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, chemo-naive, and there was some controversy as to whether the 3B patients were limited to what we call wet 3B versus people who perhaps in the United States, might qualify for combined chemo and radiation and a performance status of zero to one. But the results basically showed when the two arms or bevacizumab arms were looked at combined versus the placebo arms was an advantage in favor of the bevacizumab with respect to progression-free survival that was statistically significant. When you look at the numbers, they don't seem that impressive. The median progression-free survival was 6.1 months in the placebo arm, and then when broken down by the different doses of bevacizumab, it came out to 6.7 on the 7.5 milligrams and 6.5 on the 15 milligrams. So really not that remarkable. However, when you look a little bit beyond, for example, the 12-month progression-free survival, it was 9.7% for the placebo versus about 14% for the bevacizumab arms. In terms of overall survival, the data is just not mature and we will need to wait a little bit until we have survival data. Now, you mentioned the thing about the dose. Was the trial designed to or powered to to compare the two doses? No, and that's a very good point. So the study was not designed as a direct comparison between 7.5 and 15, and that was a source of a lot of debate at the ASCO meeting and whether one can derive definitive conclusions as far as clinical practice from this trial or not. One, because we don't have overall survival data. This is only progression-free survival. Second, because the trial was not designed to compare the two dosages. Having said that, when you look at the important endpoints, 
they were very, very similar between the two dosages of bevacizumab. Really no significant difference, not in the statistical sense, but in the clinical sense between those two arms. What about the issue of the fact that they use cysts in this setting? I mean, what does this really mean from a practical perspective, what you've seen here? Is it more a demonstration of principle or something pragmatic? I think that's a regimen that most oncologists in Europe feel comfortable with. Now, had we not had ECOG 4599, we in the United States would be debating this issue and whether or not it applies to a carboplatin-based doublet. But luckily, we already have that answer. So even when combined with carboplatin and paclitaxel in that case, bevacizumab was also advantageous. So I don't really think that there's a big difference between the two platinum analogs in that sense when combined with bevacizumab. And in terms of the dose issue, what are the implications there? Are you planning on changing the dose that you utilize? I'm not quite ready to make that switch yet. However, on the other hand, if I, for whatever reason, have some concerns, I wouldn't be upset or second-guess myself if I had to start at 7.5. So, you know, I'm sort of trying to digest this information at this point. I think if you want to be data-driven, you have to stick to the 15 you know, milligrams per kilogram. However, it makes me less uncomfortable. You know, if a colleague of mine or if, as I said before, I choose to use 7.5, I wouldn't think that that's unreasonable. Again, I think there was a discussion about this at ASCO. Tom Lynch was the discussant, and his perspective was a little different, and he concluded that 7.5 was nearly equivalent to 15, and the onus, you know, to use 15 was really on the part of whoever wants to use 15. I'm not sure that's the case. I think this is going to take a little while to digest before we can make that switch. What do you consider right now evidence-based regimens that can be combined with bevacizumab in this setting? Well, we have carboplatin paclitaxel, and we have cisplatin and gemcitabine. Those are the two regimens that I think have been looked at in a phase three randomized setting. There are other phase two regimens that include a variety of agents. Phil Bonomi presented carboplatin, pemetrexid, and bevacizumab, which looked good. We ourselves did oxaliplatin, gemcitabine, or gemox, avastin, and in that case, it looked good as well. So I don't think that the use of bevacizumab will be limited to certain regimens. I think that issue is slowly going away. And I know a year ago, you know, we used to talk about that all the time. I think people are getting more and more comfortable with bevacizumab with a variety of drugs. There's also something interesting about Aveo that I'd like to point out, and that's the fact that although they excluded patients who needed anticoagulation, you know, within 10 days of entry into the study, those who required anticoagulation as they were being treated did get it and were not excluded. And those patients did not have, you know, higher bleeding complications than anybody else in the study. So that's another issue that we've had to deal with for the past year or two. And it will slowly go away. People will get more comfortable with patients on full anticoagulation as they treat with bevacizumab. In fact, the toxicity was pretty much what one would expect, not any higher than ECOG 4599, the expected number of episodes of pulmonary hemorrhage. They pointed out that reasonable number of those episodes 
were in patients with central lesions and whether or not that's an important factor. We here in the United States were not able to prove because of the small numbers, but perhaps we'll have more and more data on that. On the other hand, just to be provocative, we also looked at two phase two studies in small cell lung cancer. Presumably, most of those patients have you know, large central lesions and really without major complications as far as pulmonary hemorrhage. So it, this still is open to debate. Let's talk about two presentations that sort of come together, which is in locally advanced disease. First, the HOG study that Nasser Hanna presented, and then SWOG 0023 study presented by Karen Kelly. Okay. Both the HOG study and the follow-up on SWOG 0023 were designed to follow up on the observations made on SWOG 9504, which is arguably one of the most influential studies conducted in stage 3 disease in the past decade, certainly the most influential phase 2 study. The HOG study was designed to look at the specific question of consolidation docetaxel after combined cisplatin etoposide and radiation. So there were some concerns about the statistical design as far as the sample size being sufficient or large enough to show a meaningful difference, if not statistical. The difference that the investigators were looking to achieve was 15 months in one arm versus 25 months, and it's quite an ambitious difference. But yet they completed the trial when they met a certain endpoint that was pre-established by the DSMB, the committee decided to close the study. So the study looked at both patients with stage 3A and 3B, unlike 9504, which was limited to stage 3B patients, performance status 0 to 1, although they did accept a drop in the performance status by the time of the randomization to docetaxel. And what they showed basically was absolutely no difference for the consolidation docetaxel. That was true for progression-free survival and overall survival. The results are, I have to admit, a little surprising. I think most of us, myself included, would have predicted perhaps a trend a non-significant trend in favor of the docetaxel. However, the curves here completely overlap, and there's no difference at all for those who receive the consolidation docetaxel. Furthermore, the toxicity for the consolidation was not trivial. So they had significant hematologic toxicity, a high rate of hospitalizations and complications. So this was both a toxic and an ineffective treatment for patients who had completed cisplatin etoposide and radiation. One of the things about the study was that they did not use prophylactic myeloid growth factors, and most of the people I've talked to, I think including you, have done that in a non-protocol setting. And the other thing was I wondered how selective they were in terms of sort of the overall health status of these patients, mm-hmm. their FEV1, et cetera. Were, you know, would you have seen the same results if you'd used growth factors and maybe been more selective about who went in the study? So I think with respect to the growth factor, they probably would have avoided a lot of the toxicity. We would still be dealing with the efficacy issue, but yes. The but I mean, the idea would be that more people would have gotten the treatment in. Yes, although they actually had a relatively good percentage of patients who completed all three cycles. If I'm not mistaken, nearly 80% of the patients actually had all three cycles, which was not really different than 9504. 
or 0023 for that matter. So in any event, they could have prevented some of the toxicities. Now, as far as the pulmonary function and selection of patients, that's actually beginning to emerge as we discuss these two trials. So there was a percentage of people in the study with FEV1s lower than 2 liters, for example, was much higher than the 9504, and this may represent something. And you will see as we move along in the SWOG study, the number of people with V20s over 35% also did quite poorly. Now, whether that's an issue in and of itself or it's just a surrogate for tumor bulk, I think we need to look into it more carefully. So bottom line, just in terms of this issue of maintenance, docetaxel after chemo radiation, is that out the door for the minute? I think one will have to think twice before, you know, using consolidation docetaxel after cisplatin toposidin radiation. The flip side of that, however, is that we will have to accept the notion that stage 3 disease patients will receive no more than two cycles of systemic chemotherapy. To me, that is still a difficult concept, and it's hard for me to imagine that that is sufficient Particularly, treatment. I guess, from an adjuvant or micrometastatic point of view. Exactly. I, mean, I could maybe envision it would be okay for the chemoradiation. I don't know. What do you think? I think that's what we need to look into more carefully. It's possible that by adding additional cycles of chemo, if you use a systemic regimen along with the radiation, then the incremental benefit is minimal or simply non-existent. It's important, however, to send the message to people out there in the community that if you choose to use, however, a different regimen along with the radiation, this principle may not apply. And this is what we see a lot. You know, people who end up receiving chest radiation with weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel and end up not receiving any type of consolidation. I'm not sure that people would be comfortable with that. Personally, I would not. In fact, right after the hog presentation, some members of the RTOG committee had to discuss what to do about the upcoming phase three study in stage three disease, looking at two different doses of radiation. That trial uses weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel, but yet is followed by additional systemic chemo. And we all voted to maintain that design. What's the exact regimens that are used? It's carboplatin and paclitaxel, carboplatin AUC of two, paclitaxel 45 milligrams per meter squared per week, and this is throughout thoracic radiation, followed by what's called systemic carboplatin and paclitaxel, AUC of six, and 200 of paclitaxel for three additional cycles. What's the regimen that you've been using in these patients before ASCO, and what are you doing now? I actually had adopted the SWOG regimen in many of my patients. I would be selective about it, so patients with borderline performance status or even borderline pulmonary capacity, patients with severe comorbid conditions, etc., I wouldn't feel comfortable using that regimen, but otherwise, that was my first-line regimen. All the other patients, I was using weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel. We have to look at all this together, and some of the presentations actually did just that. If you look at the numbers, you do see a little bit of a migration. So now you're talking about a median survival of about 21 months or so for the hog study when all of the other trials with carboplatin and paclitaxel, excluding the CLGB1, had a median survival of about 17 months. But 
there's a lot of patient selection, stage migration that probably accounts for this difference. So I can't really say that I was using the 9504 regimen because I really think based on the numbers that it's a superior regimen. It just made sense to me to use it in our better prognosis patients. Yeah. So what are you going to do now? I'm not going to use consolidation docetax. So in those patients who I treat with cisplatin etoposide and radiation, and those who I choose to use the weekly regimen, I will probably use some form of consolidation, but most likely with the same carboplatin and paclitaxel regimen. Okay, what about SWOG0023? So SWOG is an update. SWOG actually used the whole 9504 package, so all those patients received cisetoposide radiation followed by docetaxel, and then the randomization was gefitinib or not. And this is at a time that this was a reasonable rationale for using EGFR inhibitors in that setting in sort of a maintenance proposal. In any event, what Karen Kelly had already shown two years ago and confirmed this time is that not only there was no advantage in favor of gefitinib, but the treatment was clearly inferior, this time statistically significant. So this to me is one of the many examples of the value of a phase three randomized study. In fact, both of these studies do exactly this. They actually make you pause, you know, as far as phase two data or just intuition, you know, that we somehow all use in clinical practice. I remember at the time that the SWOG trial was designed that not only physicians were recommending this type of approach, but patients were asking for it. You know, they would complete their combined modality therapy and say, I want to go on the pill because I just don't want to be without treatment. And now we see that this was not only not helpful, but it was detrimental. And I think there's probably a biological lesson to be learned here. I don't know what it is yet, but I think there's something about the use of chemo and radiation followed by an EGFR TKI that somehow changes the pathways. And we need to learn this because we may be able to apply to other disease settings. What about the issue of power and number of patients of events to be able to, I understand it was statistically significant, but do we know that this is really a detrimental effect? And if so, what would be the mechanism? In the initial presentation in 2005, we couldn't say that it was detrimental because at that point, the p-value, if I'm not mistaken, was 0.09. It was clearly not advantageous, but we couldn't say it was detrimental. Now with this update, the median survival, for example, in the gefitinib arm was 23 months. In the placebo arm, it was 35 months. And this difference actually reached 0.01, obviously in favor of the placebo arm. So I think that the numbers are much more robust than they were in 2005 with longer follow-up, even though the trial did not reach its predefined accrual target. It was closed because of other trials with gefitinib had been negative. I don't have any difficulties concluding that the use of gefitinib in the setting is detrimental. I don't know the mechanism, though. This is what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. I don't know what chemo radiation does to that pathway or other pathways. There was a discussion about potential biological explanations that I think we just need to do more work on that. 
I guess one thing we should point out here is that clearly this yeah. was not an enriched population for response Correct. to EGFRs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I start thinking about like what would happen if you gave Herceptin to people without knowing the HER2 status. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. that it's that straightforward with the TKIs, but certainly you can't. I don't think you conclude you would have saw the same thing in a enriched population. Oh, not at all. No. So I think today this trial would have been designed differently and probably restricted to what we define as an enriched population, at least in this setting. If you take that further, for example, the adjuvant trial, the radiant, really predefines an enriched population by either immunohistochemical positivity for EGFR or gene amplification. So it would have been similar in a stage three, potentially curable setting. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether you had any concerns about putting patients on that trial or in using erlotinib in the metastatic setting in terms of, quote, for a, a negative effect. Yeah. No. So for a metastatic population, the data is, at least for a pretreated population, I don't think we can say that it's not advantageous and certainly that it's detrimental. I mean, we have the R21 designed for a non-enriched population, and the treatment effect was seen across all subgroups. Now, if you cut through the forest plot, then you see that the impact of erlotinib was much more important on certain subsets, but it was seen across all subgroups. So I don't have concerns about using EGFR TKIs in the metastatic setting, but I would have in non-selected populations in earlier disease. What about the adjuvant trial or trials that are out there looking at a rich populations? Any concern about putting patients on that study or studies? No, I think today, based on current knowledge, and this may change, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I think if you select the patients carefully and you offer standard management as well, in addition to the TKI, then I would have no difficulties in rolling patients to the adjuvant trial. Let's talk a little bit about the paper looking at immediate versus delayed docetaxel after an induction therapy. That study looked at immediate versus delayed docetaxel after treatment with carboplatin gemcitabine in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. This is a concept that has sort of permeated thoracic oncology for many, many years. And the results of this study actually, to some extent, contradicted our expectations and what we knew so far. Everybody was treated with carboplatin and gemcitabine. Those who did not progress went on to receive either immediate docetaxel every 21 days until progression or for a maximum of six cycles versus those who were watched until they developed progressive disease and then were treated. Now, one very important observation that came out of the study is that most of the patients assigned to the immediate docetaxel actually received the treatment. So 552 patients initially received carboplatin gemcitabine. 307 did not progress. 153 were assigned to immediate docetaxel. Of those, 142 received the treatment. On the other hand, for the 154 patients assigned to the delayed docetaxel, only 91 received the treatment. And the reason for that was primarily disease progression. 
and the fact that those individuals probably, I'm assuming, missed their window of opportunity. Some patients decided against it. I mean, there were other reasons, but the main reason was disease progression. That, to me, sends a cautionary note about what we do in clinical practice today because that's exactly what we do. We treat patients with four cycles, in some cases up to six cycles of a doublet, and then we watch them until there is either subjective or clinical or objective progression, and then they receive treatment. What this study now shows is that maybe switching to a different regimen right after the initial four cycles of treatment may provide some advantages. For example, when you look at the progression-free survival, they saw a pretty significant difference in favor of immediate docetaxel. In fact, it was 6.5 months in the immediate arm versus 2.8 months in the delayed arm. Now, they also saw a trend in favor of overall survival in the docetaxel arm, but the numbers did not reach statistical significance. But yet, it was 11.9 or 12 months versus 9 months in the delayed arm. So this is a three-month difference in overall survival. I have to admit this paper made me think twice about how we treat our patients today. So this was an important contribution. It's a little different today because at least for those who receive bevacizumab, in addition to the carboplatin doublet, they go on to receive maintenance bevacizumab, which is an issue in and of itself. But I'm not sure how this strategy would play out in that setting. But for those who do not receive bevacizumab and are just watched between first line and second line, I wonder if I wouldn't change my practice. What are the kinds of patients, I'm going to guess if you're going to do this to kind of get your foot in the water, you might go to a younger, healthier patient at first? I think so. Yes, I think so. Especially if we choose to stop at four and then these patients are doing well clinically, maintain an excellent performance status, and there are no major concerns about the docetaxel every 21 days. So I think those are the patients that would qualify for that. See, that's the beauty of a randomized trial because that's not how the trial was designed. Basically, you would expect the patient characteristics to be more or less the same in both arms. So this is an important trial. As I said before, I think it sort of contradicts how we treat patients in practice, and I think we all need to think about this very carefully. And I guess the trial that maybe you'd like to see would be the patient who's getting bevacizumab, as you said, goes on to maintenance, but maybe instead of going on to maintenance, you just keep the bevacizumab going and bring in whatever, docetaxel or some other agent. Is that being tested in clinical trials? I believe one of the Genentech-sponsored trials looks at exactly this question. So in another year or two, you know, we'll have some data as to the best treatment after initial chemotherapy with bevacizumab. Let's talk a little bit about a couple papers related mm-hmm. to TKIs. Mm-hmm. One by Francis Shepard looking at analyses of exons 19 and 21 of epidermal growth factor receptor and a bunch of other things in the BR21 trial mm-hmm. looking at erlotinib and the other, an ECOG study looking at proteomic classification of clinical benefit from erlotinib. Mm-hmm. And they just published a paper on the same thing. Can you kind of put together what these two papers were looking at? With respect to the EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, I think there's a great deal of work being done on how to best select 
patients who will have the most benefit from these agents on a molecular basis. You know, so let's set aside for now the clinical characteristics that predict benefit and just focus on the EGFR expression by immunohistochemical analysis, EGFR gene amplification by fish, and the mutation analysis. When BR21 was analyzed initially and presented a couple of years ago, there wasn't a correlation between mutation and survival that was somewhat surprising at that point. We had just learned about the mutation and its predictive and prognostic significance. So what the authors did is they went back to the BR21 population and the samples that were available, redid the mutation analysis with a different technique, actually found a higher number of patients who had a mutated EGFR and then tried to correlate these results with outcome. And so what they found at the end was that the EGFR gene copy, you know, was the strongest molecular predictor of outcome and the one that best correlated with survival. So this adds to all the data that we've seen from Fred Hirsch and the group from Colorado that this may be perhaps the single best test for benefit. I still don't have a very good position on the matter, and I can see that others would say that a mutated EGFR is also a very strong predictor of benefit from TKI or TK inhibitors. The second study used a different approach. So the study was based on patients who received erlotinib as first line in the context of an ECOG trial but they used serum proteinomics to define. So actually what they had is what they called a training set that was defined from other patients treated with second-line or third-line gefitinib from other institutions, and then they applied that training set to patients who were treated with erlotinib in first line. And what they saw was a very nice correlation between that proteinomic signature and benefit from the erlotinib. So I think this is fascinating because it's yet another step towards that holy grail of oncology, you know, which is trying to identify the best treatment for each patient. And here, this is of potential clinical applicability, just like the molecular markers. If you look at some of these proteomic classifiers, did they sort of make any intuitive sense about why they might predict for a response to EGFRs? Or was it purely empirical? I think this was just expression based on patients that were treated with the TK inhibitors before and had different outcomes. So I think this was right, done empirically. empirically yes. right. What about KRAS? We've heard a lot about that in yeah. predicting a non-response. So, you know, so mutated KRAS may be the single best negative predictor of benefit, and some people actually use that when you have that information available. So if the tumor you know, has a mutated KRAS, then the likelihood that the patient will benefit from a TK inhibitor is extremely small. In fact, anecdotally, I've only heard of two or three patients who had uh, mutated KRAS and actually had benefit from a DGFR TK inhibitor. You know, it's interesting. It seems like all the papers that are coming out are looking at, you know, fish or, you know, proteomics, whatever, 
And yet it seems from a clinical point of view that you have non-smoking. It seems like a pretty good clinical predictor. Is that what you utilize in your practice? Yes. So I think what – and that's what I was referring to when I said let's leave the clinical characteristics on the side is I I still need to see – some data that indicates that using the molecular analysis or the proteomic analysis is more specific than applying the clinical characteristics that we all do in practice. I suspect that this may be true in certain individual patients, quite honestly, but I'm not sure how that will apply to a larger population. So I'm comfortable using the clinical characteristics, I think particularly smoking status. When you do that, are you looking also for oligo smokers, people who maybe have less than 15-pack years, or are you mainly looking at Yeah, so I think based on the memorial data, people who are now classified as oligo smokers also have a relatively high probability of harboring mutations within their tumors and therefore you know, high likelihood of benefit from erlotinib. So I do use that in practice as well especially when the distance is pretty significant between the quit time and the diagnosis. I guess the other thing would be, too, in the PS2 patient in terms of decisions on second-line therapy, and you presented data last year's ASCO about the issue of chemo versus erlotinib, but that was in an unselected population in terms of EGFR enrichment. Correct. So that actually was carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and erlotinib. And for an unselected PS2 population, the trend was clearly in favor of, you know, chemo as opposed to erlotinib. However, and we're just about submitted the paper for publication, we did a very careful subset analysis, which I didn't have last year at ASCO. And all of the clinical predictors that we know about also seem to pan out, Hmm. you know, even in the PS2 subset. So it's possible to use those predictors. I'm not saying that it's necessarily better than using chemotherapy up front, but for certain patients with performance status too, those who fit the clinical predictors, there wasn't a huge difference between chemo and erlotinib. And in fact, there was a trial, which I had the opportunity to discuss from SWOG, that Paul Hesketh presented as a poster that looked, again, at erlotinib as first-line therapy for PS2 patients. Their median survival was five months, which was not much different than the median survival that they had for, let's say, vinoral being followed by docetaxel. So it's pretty much what you would expect with any single agent. Now, if you put that in perspective and compare to combination regimens, then I do think you see a difference. So it's not so much, I think, the issue of erlotinib versus a cytotoxic single agent. It's really single agent versus combination, you know, in the PS2 setting. So where do you integrate erlotinib in the sort of first, second, third line cascade in the enriched population, normal performance status, PS2? I don't typically use erlotinib as first-line therapy outside of a clinical trial. So we have the CLGB study that looks at erlotinib alone versus chemo plus erlotinib. I think that's an important trial, and that trial is specific for never smokers or oligosmokers, and hopefully we'll have an answer on this issue. If, however, I run into someone who absolutely does not want to be treated with chemotherapy and falls into that category, or someone 
perhaps at a much higher risk of complications for you know, meaningful chemo, then I would give it a try. In the second line, I think smoking history is the most important factor that I use to decide on whether to use erlotinib versus, let's say, either taxotere or docetaxel or pemetrexid. In a never smoker or an oligosmoker, my choice will almost always be erlotinib. In other patients, then you need to take into consideration other factors. I'm not saying that I wouldn't use erlotinib for former smokers, but I would try to solve that equation a little differently.